Good morning. My name is Mark Bates. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, this gives me some flashbacks. Uh, Twelve years ago, when I preached my candidating sermon here, so I'm coming to see if I could be your, your pastor, and it was vacation Bible school, and the stage had a shark's mouth. And uh, I was preaching in a shark's mouth, and it was a little intimidating, and, uh, but here we are, and thankful to be here. And I remember uh, going back and, and making, you know, thinking about that decision about whether or not to come, and decisions are hard. Uh, many of us think we're good at making decisions, but, but studies show that we're actually pretty bad at making decisions. And uh, uh, this happens a lot with people about career choices. 44% of lawyers say they would tell a young person not to be a lawyer. Uh, most school teachers will quit within four years. In fact, in the school district in Philadelphia, there's t- uh, school teachers are twice as likely to drop out as students. Uh, when it comes to, uh, to corporations, corporations are, are notoriously terrible at hiring. Uh, something like 50% of outside hires by Fortune 500 companies do not work out. That's one in two. One in two. You can hire two people, one of them's not going to make it. In fact, a, a survey of 20,000 hires of people both internal and external, when they hire people for senior level management positions, most of those people will be gone within 18 months. Uh, they, they don't, in fact, corporations, in fact, you get the brightest minds in the rooms and they start doing the biggest deals possible, which are mergers and acquisitions. One company buys another company. And so here are people who are experts at business doing this, something like less than 85% of those, uh, excuse me, only, only 15% of those ever make a profit for the company. They always work out badly. And so all these people think they're the smartest people in the room. They're making the most important, biggest financial decisions, and they generally get them wrong. And so there's no wonder why many of us uh, are afraid to make decisions. Yet all of us are in the decision-making business. We're making decisions all the time. We make decisions that are trivial. You know, what should I eat for breakfast, waffles or eggs? Should I have fries or salad? And of course, the answer is always fries, right? Uh, and uh, we have lots of big decisions that, that, that impact us. Should I take this job or another one? Should I marry this person? Uh, what, uh, should I move uh, to Denver for a better opportunity or stay in Colorado Springs? Where should I send my children to school? Should I let Johnny be on the traveling soccer team or should he play summer baseball? And, and on the face, of these decisions, they seem relatively small at the moment, but every one of those decisions will impact you for the, for the rest of your life. I mean, where you put your children in school not only determines their education, but their friends, and frankly, your friends, right? It, it impacts everything. The ramifications are huge, and yet uh, we have difficulty making good decisions. And so uh, one of the things we realize with each decision comes a cost, a benefit, and a consequence. How do you make good decisions? And you realize we're not capable on our own of making good decisions. We need help. And we see this even here in this prayer of Solomon, the prayer that we read moments ago. Uh, King Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and here we find the secret to his wisdom. Uh, In fact, he shows great wisdom and even how he prays for wisdom. So let's look at this prayer and notice a few things about this prayer that can help us as we pray for wisdom as well. And the first thing that we must see is that we must resist arrogance. Resist arrogance. 
Uh, and that arrogance is that we think we know best of what to do, that I can do this on my own, I don't need help, I've got this figured out, I'm a good decider, I can do this. And, uh, and Solomon resists that. Now, Solomon has just become king. His father David has died, and to the nation, Solomon is not the obvious choice to replace his father. In fact, many people, including the top generals, wanted Solomon's half-brother, Adonijah, who was more seasoned, had, a, had a more political clout, and there was a, a great movement rallying around Adonijah to become king. But David said Solomon would become king. And so a lot of people were wondering if Solomon was up to the task. One of the people who was wondering whether or not Solomon was up to the task was Solomon himself. He didn't know if he was up to the task. And so look what he says in verse 7. He says, and now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Solomon describes himself as a little child, and he's exaggerating slightly. He was probably 20 years old. Think of you, or those of you who are over 20, uh, if you're under 20, you think of 20 as being old and wise and having everything figured out. Those of us who are over 20, remember where you were at age 20. I remember where I was at age 20. You know, 20 years old, that's when you finished, uh, in, in a lot of cases, if you went to college, that's when you finished your sophomore year. You know the word sophomore, where it comes from, right? Two Greek words, Sophia, which means wise, wisdom, moros, <laughs> yes, you got that word right, moron. And so, so sophomore's what? A wise fool. They've got a lot of education, but they don't know what to do with it yet. And uh, they, they, they think they have things figured out, but they don't have things figured out. And, and that's where so Solomon is at this point in his life. He's a wise fool. At least in this case, though, he's wise enough to know that he's a fool. He's wise enough to know that he doesn't have it all quite figured out. And so he goes on to say, I don't know how to go out or come in. And, and he's speaking here about leadership. He doesn't know about when to lead out the army, when to bring the army back. He's never led an army. He's, he's 20 years old. He's never led the army. He's never run a government. He has never done anything in his life up to this point. And now he's in charge of, of running an entire country. And so he says, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, don't, I don't have the experience. I don't have the qualifications. I need help. And notice this, he resists the arrogance of youth. He resists the idea of saying, I can do this, I can figure it out. Instead, he throws himself before God and says, God, I need help. And that's where we begin in prayer. We begin in prayer by recognizing we do not have this figured out. And if you think you have it figured out, you are in great, great danger. Solomon was wise enough to reject arrogance. Secondly, though, uh, we have to reject passivity, reject passivity. Uh, you know, just as there is a tendency of some to think, I can handle this on my own, I got to figure this out, there's a, another tendency that, that some will have who will, out of fear, fail to engage with the responsibility that they have. Humility is not the same as cowardice. Humility is not the same as cowardice. Humility says, I am in over my head, a cowardice says, because I'm in over my head, I will not engage. And yet Solomon recognizes that is not an option for him. 
He has been called to lead. Whether or not he's qualified is irrelevant at this point. He is king. He has to lead. And so because he has to lead, he has to engage. Uh, By the way, this idea of, of cowardice in leadership is particularly a problem for men. And studies have shown this. When men are insecure, and men, well, we're never insecure, right? You know, and, so, and so typically what we do with our insecurity is we act uninsecure, and so what happens is the man's initial instinct and in insecurity is to fight. I'm going to dominate, I'm going to conquer, I'm going I'm to do what it takes. And, though, and so at times that can go to a, a position of dominance, even abuse, because men are insecure, and that's how they respond to insecurity, to, uh, to abuse of power, to, to, to dominance. But often then what happens is, when dominance doesn't work and a man faces a challenge that he doesn't know what to do with, then he goes the other direction and he becomes passive. Uh, studies have shown this in marriage about men. As a researcher from Washington, uh, pretty famous at this point, named John Gottman, who's done research on why couples get divorced, And he talks about the four horsemen of the apocalypse for your marriage. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse for your marriage are defensiveness, uh, criticism, stonewalling, and contempt. And we could talk about those four later, but I want to focus on really one. Uh, It says they've done the study. They found that there are some gender differences And who does what in marriage? They say women are more given, not always, by the way, but women are more given to which one, do you guess? Criticism, yeah. Uh, And what we might call nagging. That, that, that doesn't mean only women nag or all women nag or anything like that, but when marriages are bad, women have more of a tendency towards that. Do you know what man's tendency is, men's tendency is? Stonewalling. So here's what happens in a marriage. A problem comes up, the woman gets upset, she begins to criticize, what does the husband do? He avoids the whole conversation. He, he, he doesn't want to deal with it. He, he, he stonewalls. And, and so what happens is we see this with men, they either become very, very dominant or they become very, very passive because they don't want to deal with the challenges that they're facing. And, and so uh, and I think there's some, some reason for that. Why men do this? Uh, he, men refuse to engage. And I think one of the reasons is men are, are, are scared of failure. Men like to win, and if I can't win, I'm not going to play. And so for a man to fully engage at work is relatively simple because you know how to win. Reach the sales target. Boom, got that. Finish this engineering design. Understood. Complete this project. Got it. Now, he doesn't mean the man's always going to succeed, but you do know how to win. Now you take that same man and you give him a 13-year-old daughter. How do you win? I've raised three daughters. I'll give you the answer to that question. I don't know. I have no idea. And you're here and you're looking and go, I don't know what to do. And then you're in a marriage and you're married to this person and they don't think like you do. And, and, you're, and you're trying to figure out and you're having conflict and you don't know what to do and you feel like you're supposed to solve the problem, but you can't solve the problem, so what do you do? You just, you just pull away. You work more. You become passive. You, you leave things uh, at, at home up, up to your wife. In fact, and then what happens is, is wives will then result, resort to mothering their husbands. They'll treat him like one of the children. In fact, you'll hear women say this. You know, How many children do you have? Oh, I have two. Oh, then my husband, that's three. 
And, uh, and, and so that's the result of the passivity of the husband because he doesn't want to engage because he's afraid of failure. And, uh, and, and so we see this in marriage. We see this in, in a lot of things, uh, not just with men. We fail to engage because we're afraid we might fail. We don't accept responsibility because we're not sure we can handle it. And so uh, we, we simply live, and, and for some, they simply live with this constant fear and anxiety. I don't want to make a decision. I don't want to accept responsibility because what if I make a decision and I'm wrong? And here's the problem. You're probably going to be wrong a good bit of the time. Now, one of the things I've said about my own uh, area of, of leadership, one time I was talking to our elders about this, I have two choices uh, in leadership. I can lead and make mistakes, or I can not lead, right? Those are the only two options I have available to me. And the same thing with us. And so what happens is because we're so afraid of failure that we withdraw, we'll become passive, and we won't engage. I don't know what to do, so let's do nothing. But Solomon says, I can't do that. Uh, you, you can't do that. God has given him a responsibility as king. God has given you responsibilities, and they're your responsibilities. You can't give them to anyone else. You can't say, I'm sorry, kids, I don't know how to parent. I'm going, uh, going out. You can't say, I'm not going to make financial decisions about my future. You can't say, I'm not going to plan my retirement. You can't say any of those things. Those are your responsibilities. You must accept them. You must embrace them because in the providence of God, he has given them to you, and you have to reject passivity and accept responsibility. I remember when I got my first job out of seminary, I was a lot older than Solomon. I was 25. And... um, uh, up to this point, all I had done in my life is go to school. That is it. That is the, the, my whole experience. And uh, I am uh, uh, now overseeing in a large church, a middle school ministry, a high school ministry, and a single adult ministry, and I don't know what I'm doing. Now, I, I can give you an outline of every book in the Bible. I can tell you what's wrong with sacerdotalism, and I can parse every Greek verb. But as far as leading a ministry, I am clueless, and everybody knows I'm clueless. And so one time, this man in my singles group came up to me, and he was uh, you know, already uh, very successful in commercial real estate, and he was a lot older. He was 30. And he, um, <laughs> he came up to me. He was an intimidating guy. And he came up to me. He said, hey, Bates, we need a leader, so lead. Yes, sir, uh, I, I, I will do that. But, but in some sense, that was God speaking, right? I'd been given responsibility, the church had given this to me, and, and, and I had to embrace it, whether I felt qualified or not. And the same is true for you. We want to run away, we want to abdicate, we want to do nothing, we don't want to make the decision. That's not an option. Well, it is an option, it's not a good option. It's not a biblical option. So you can't be arrogant and say, I've got this, I've got this figured out, and you can't abdicate responsibility, so where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us, and our third point is embrace dependent responsibility. Dependent responsibility. That's a, dependent responsibility is a, a term uh, Jerry Bridges used to apply to our spiritual growth, and I think it applies here as well to be a dependent responsibility is that we take responsibility for the task that has been given to us because it's been given to us by God. It is your task. But we recognize we cannot do it on our own, 
So we do it in dependence on God for his power and his guidance. What does this look like? What does dependent responsibility look like? First is the realization, the faith, that you are not alone. You are not alone. Oftentimes we go through life, even as Christians, thinking that we're spiritual orphans in the world, that if it's going to be, it's up to me, that I'm by myself facing these challenges, and we live as if we don't have a Father in heaven who's watching out for us. Solomon rejects that spiritual orphan mentality. Notice what he says in verse six. And Solomon said, you've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. Now notice twice there, Solomon uses the term steadfast love. That's a translation of a single Hebrew word, one of the few Hebrew words that's helpful for you to know, and it's hesed, um, hesed. And hesed, uh, there really is no English equivalent to this word. It means God's covenant love, his, his loyal love, his faithful love. It's a, a till death do us part love. It is a love that says, I will not let you go. And so Solomon's coming before God, and he says, God, you have shown your hesed, your steadfast love to my father. You were with him all the way. You cherished my father. And then he uses the word hesed again, and he says, and I am here. I am a son sitting on my father's throne because of your love for my father. You promised my father. In fact, God entered into a covenant with David, and he said to David, your descendant will sit on the throne eternally, forever. And so Solomon is saying, I am here because of your love for my father. That's the reason I am king. It's because of your faithful love to my father. And so because you have faithfully loved my father and you put me on this throne, I'm seeking you. I need you. Solomon recognizes that he is king, but he's not alone. God, his father, is going to walk with him. He's confident in this. Yes, he's ill-prepared, Yes, he doesn't have the experience, but he's not by himself. God will walk with him as he serves as king. And uh, we can have that same confidence today. You know, that same promise that God gave to David is still true. God said to David, your son will reign on the throne forever. They'll eternally be on the throne. God has fulfilled that promise with the coming of the true son of David, that is Jesus. And God will be faithful to Jesus, his son, And because we are united to Jesus in faith, we know that God will be faithful to us as well, to those of us who are in Christ. Now, notice how Solomon does not pray. He does not pray and says, God, if you will do this for me, then I will do X. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, God, bless me because because I'm so good or I've been faithful. He says, bless me because of my Father. And in the same way, when we come before God, and we pray, we don't say, God, bless me because of what I've done. In fact, I think that's one of the reasons we're very insecure in prayer. We're insecure in prayer because oftentimes we think we're coming to God and asking him to bless us based on what we've done. And so then we look at our sin, we look at our failure, and we say, God, there's no way God can bless me. I don't deserve it. I, I, I've done nothing to earn it. I haven't, I haven't been faithful enough. I haven't been obedient enough. I haven't read my Bible enough. I haven't prayed it. I haven't done these things. And so we think, 
Why would God ever answer my prayer? But we're not coming in our name. Solomon comes in the name of his father. We come in the name of King Jesus. And we come before God and we say, Lord, I'm not asking you to bless me because of any good that I've done, but because Jesus, my king, came and he lived a perfect life on my behalf. He died on the cross and he paid for all of my sin. And he's risen victoriously over sin and death and now is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty pleading on my behalf. And so, Lord, I pray to you, hear my cry, not because of who I am, but because of who I am in Christ, because of my union with him. Christian, you're not alone. You, you know, as you go through life, and you're, you know, I, I just think about parenting which I, and, and marriage and friendships and work and all these things that are so, so hard, so hard. And we feel, you feel like you're all alone there. And oftentimes we're living as if we're all alone. You don't have to live that way. You have a father who cares about you. Cry out to him. He is listening to you. He will be with you. He is with you. The question is, are you recognizing that? Are you living as a child of God or are you living as an orphan? You know, we think of, um, we think of being needy and needing someone's help as, as a weakness. That's actually how God designed us. God designed us to need him. We are designed for community. Uh, our weakness, our brokenness, shows when we seek to live independent of him. Our wholeness, our fullness, our flourishing shows itself when we live in communion with him. And so that's why we pray. We pray because we are, are not alone. And then secondly, embracing dependent responsibility means faith that you're not alone, but also it means prayer for God's wisdom, that we seek God's wisdom. Uh, Notice again, uh, as Solomon prays, uh, verse 9, he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this your great people? Now, notice this. Solomon is not simply praying, Lord, make me wise so my life will go better. That's not his prayer. He says, God, you've given me a mission, and your mission is to lead your people for your glory. And I want to live a life that's glorious to you. And I want to care for your people. And I want to see your people flourish. And so, Lord, to do that, I need your wisdom. God has given us a mission. And it's not all about you. It's all about him, his church, his people, his kingdom. And so Solomon prays, Lord, help me to do what you've called me to do. But, but he realizes he's in over his head, but he's not alone so he rejects passivity, he embraces the responsibility, and he seeks God's help in leading God's people. Now, God may not have called you to be a king of Israel, but he has called you to a life that requires wisdom. And, and wisdom, by the way, is not the same thing as learning the rules and following the rules. Oftentimes, what we want God to do is simply, God, just tell me what to do, right? Write it in the sky. Send me an email, uh, text message, Snapchat, I don't care. I just want to know what to do. You ever prayed that, Lord, just show me what to do? And then what do you hear back? Cricket, cricket, cricket at times, right? Because what God is doing, he's not because he's abandoning you. We think faith is, I'm going to seek the Lord, and he's going to tell me what to do, and I'm going to go out with 100% certainty. That's not biblical faith. 
Biblical faith is actually entering into the darkness and trusting that God is with you. It is engaging and believing that he will not abandon you. Uh, Larry Crabb says that the problem is that we want recipe theology. We want recipe theology. God just tells us A, B, C, and we're going to produce D. And as Christians, we, we bought into this in, in, uh, in many ways. In fact, I think that's why we find uh, Christian uh, how-to books so appealing. Eat God's way, right? You know, you want to be healthy. Here's the biblical diet. Uh, you know, if you want to raise your children, just do this. You can program that so they're about as good as a trained seal. And, uh, and we have all the methodology here in all of our Christian books. And, um, uh, you know, you want your marriage. If you want your husband to do this, then you do this. And by the way, it's right out of B.F. Skinner and behavioralistic psychology. It's not Christian. It, it, it is manipulation. And, uh, and not that you can't learn some good things from those, those books, but, but the problem is we, we, want, we want the recipe. Just tell me what to do. But most decisions you make in your life are not given to recipes. In fact, most of them are not given even to following the rules. You know, for example, you know, the Bible gives us the Ten Commandments and the law of God. And so you always know, is it the will of God for me to steal or not? It's, it's God's will that you don't steal, right? That's pretty clear. But there's a lot of things that aren't quite covered in the law of God. And, and yet, we're supposed to be faithful to God in those things too. So, so uh, you know, how should you invest for your retirement? It, it would real estate or stocks, which would be better? It's hard to find a verse on that one. Um, you know, uh, what about... Um, you know, where should you send your child to school? Should, uh, should your daughter do soccer or violin? Uh, how you understand scripture will impact those decisions, but these decisions are not merely moral decisions. They're wisdom decisions. Uh, you can't find out if you should be an engineer or a school teacher or if you should move or if you should stay. Biblical principles come into these decisions, uh, but the rules alone are not enough uh, to, um, to help you make good decisions. In fact, wisdom... Wisdom works differently than commands in the Bible. Let me give you two examples. I meant to print these on the screen and I forgot, but let me uh, give you one. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs 26, 4. So let's say you're, um, you're in a, a discussion with somebody and somebody posts something online and it's just wrong. It's just, it's just foolish. And so you begin to think, what should I do? What does the Bible say about this? And so will the Bible actually speaks to this issue of how do you address a fool? And so Proverbs 26, four says this, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you yourself will be just like him. Hey, that applies to Twitter really well, right? Uh, don't answer him because if you answer a fool, you can become like a fool. He said, okay, here's the Bible verse. I know how to respond. But then you look at the next verse, Proverbs 26, five, answer a fool according to his folly or else he'll be wise in his own eyes. Wait, the first verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. The second verse says, do answer a fool according to his folly. Which one do you do? Yes. It depends, right? It depends. Wisdom is not like law. Wisdom is something we seek from God and knowing which rule to apply in which situation takes the spirit of God. And, and it's not, you can't just simply look up the verse and seek to make a decision. And so, 
So, and by the way, it's not like these verses contradict themselves. The editor and the writers of Proverbs, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew what they were doing when they put these verses back to back. So, so it's not like it's a contradiction. The whole point is wisdom uh, requires wisdom. And uh, so, so how do you know uh, what, to, what the, right answer, the right thing to do is? Well, here's the disturbing thing. You don't. You don't always know the right thing to do. That bothers us. But here's the comforting thing. You're not alone. You're not alone. God is with you in that. God is with you. And here's what we learn from the prayer of Solomon. He knows that he does not have the ability to make all the right decisions. He knows he's in over his head. And if he's left to himself, he'll make a mess of things. There is no manual. Yes, he has the law of God to be applied at all times, at all places, for all people. He's got that. So, but, but there's no rule book. And so, so what does he do? He prays and he acts. He prays and he leads. He prays and he embraces the responsibility. He rules over Israel, but he does so in prayerful dependence upon God. And it is this confidence that God is with him that gives him the courage to go out and lead even when he's not 100% sure of what he is doing. Because God is sovereign, God is in control, and God loves his people. Well, as I mentioned, it was exactly 12 years ago uh, that, uh, that I was considering coming here. And I remember after visiting here, uh, and we kind of snuck in the back and were hiding and went back to my, my church where I was serving in Orlando, and I'm meeting there with the elders of the church, and I'm telling them that I'm thinking about moving to Colorado Springs and uh, just asking them to pray for me. And, and they said, well, how sure are you that you should move? And I said, well, I think I'm about 70, 30 uh, that I should move. And they go, well, that's pretty certain. I said, okay, then it's 60, 40, um, because I'm not, I'm not that certain. And uh, that bothered some people. You should be 100% sure. I'm not 100% sure I should get up in the morning. I, I, and so I can't have confidence in that. that that's that's, that's going to paralyze me. My confidence and my hope is in God. That even, even if I make a bad decision, and I make them a lot, then my Father's not going to abandon me. And you can live with that same assurance that God's not going to abandon you that he's going to care for you. It's not like God is like, some, this show my age, it's not like he's Monty Hall, remember this? Let's make a deal. You got something behind door number one, door number two, door number three, and uh, the, the, the car's behind door number one, and the, that goat or whatever's behind door number two or something. And, uh, and you guess wrong, and you get the goat, and God's going, oh, if only you'd pick door number three. He's not like that. He's not a cruel father. He walks with his children. Even in those dark days, even in those uncertain times, and he will not forsake you. And the way we know that is by coming to the table today, that God has shown us he will not abandon his people. He's shown us his commitment to us by giving us his own son. And so in those days, when you're unsure, when you're afraid, when you don't know what to do, reject passivity, reject arrogance, and embrace faith that you have a father who loves you. And we're going to pray, and as we pray, I'm first going to lead us in a time of confession. And then we'll come to assurance as we come to the Lord's table. So let's pray. Uh, As we pray, let's begin first by confessing our arrogance before God. 
Confess to him those decisions that you thought you could make without his help. Confess to him those times you thought you had it all figured out. And all of your, your wisdom, you were sure you knew the right thing to do. Confess to him those things. And now let's take time to confess to him those times when you've been passive, when you have not accepted the responsibility that God has given to you, when you've been ruled by fear and anxiety rather than by faith. And remember these words that our Lord told us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And remember this promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Lord, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that the blood of Christ cleanses us. And we pray you confirm these blessings to us, even as we continue to worship you through the Lord's table.